0: Welcome to Sunny in Seattle with your host, Sunny Joy. And coming up on today's show, Sunny's guest will be award-winning science and history writer Robert Whittaker, who's the author of Mad in America and Anatomy of an Epidemic. Tune in as they discuss rethinking psychiatric care in the U.S., as well as some alarming scientific research that suggests our current drug-based paradigm of care has failed our society. And now I welcome your host for the day, Sunny Joy.
1: And welcome, welcome, everyone. Happy Friday. Uh, welcome to Sunny in Seattle. I'm your host, attorney Turn life coach, Sunny Joy McMillan. And we're here every Friday from 9 to 10 a.m. on Alternative Talk, 1150 a.m. W, bringing you amazing coaches, teachers, authors, and healers who are on a mission to encourage you inspire you and give you tools to live a life filled with peace joy freedom and purpose it is radio that positively shines and if you can't catch the show live you can always access those show archives those are found at 1150 kknw.com And you can also find out more about me, connect with me for coaching through my website. And that website is goldenoversoul.com. That's goldenoversoul.com. And one quick housekeeping matter before we dive in today, I want to make sure you all um, know that I've got a Sacred Supper Club event coming up, and if you're in the Seattle or Pacific Northwest area, this one is for you. Um, we're actually going to the Oregon coast. We'll be in Newport, Oregon, at a beautiful beach house on Holiday Beach. Um, this will be on Friday, June 7th. Um, and Sacred Supper Club, if you haven't heard of it before, it's a quarterly dinner event that I do Um with a dear friend and colleague uh, who is a near-death experience survivor. So she brings some extra magic to uh, these events. And it's basically a dinner event where instead of small talk, we talk about the universe and we talk about science and spirituality and all of the the good stuff in between. Um, and we always provide Nourishing food. We maybe have a little wine if that's your thing, and uh, we have a fun coconut breaking ceremony at the end. So if you want to know more and find out details, registration information, if this sounds like it might be a fit for you, go go to my website, which is goldenoversoul.com, and just go to the events page, and you will find the links there. Um, so Vinny, quick check in. What's going on with you?
0: Not a whole lot. This uh, coconut breaking ceremony kind of is curious mm-hmm. on my part. What do you do after you're done with them? Do you like make like a coconut? Broad of them or something. Like, do I need to wear a grass skirt? Oh, wait, I'm not allowed to go anyway. So,
1: <laughs> what do you mean you're not allowed to go? Ah, it's what? a ladies'
0: thing. No,
1: it is not. Oh. We've been to these events before. It tends to draw more women, but it's for boys too. Yes, I'm in. <laughs> All right. You got to come to one of them, Benny. So it's um, not yeah.
0: B Y O C B. Bring your own no. coconut bra.
1: We, well, you can bring your own coconut bra, but we provide the coconuts to break. All right. Phew. All right. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And I just little, like a brief uh, history on that. It's it's actually um, a pretty old Hindu ritual. Oh. And it's. Uh, a, a way of offering. Mm-hmm. And so to answer your question, um, ideally you don't drink the coconut milk or make anything with the coconut meat. Got it's it. more, that's the offering. And, and okay. ideally, and this is awesome. This will be the first time we've been able to do this. Um, it's neat. If you can put the pieces in the water and a river or in the ocean and let them kind of flow out to sea or flow down the river, um, and it's a, you basically released something. And it, even folks like Dr. Uh, Rupert Sheldrake, who talks about morphogenetic fields, um, it's perhaps a way of breaking the field around whatever the issue is that you're offering up. So um, if this sounds intriguing, you'll have to come to the event and find out more.
0: I get it now. Thank <laughs> you for filling me in. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that would make sense
1: yes but you can so benny i will expect you to show up at one of these events with a coconut bra
0: i have a photo somewhere around here that i already did it like about nine ten years ago with one of our uh general managers he was out of town for the weekend so we did kind of like a luau a hog type thing to his office <laughs> and i was there in his chair with a coconut bra and a grass skirt just like pretending to be him so i will look for that just to let you guys know and i'll post it
1: Okay, please do, yes, because uh, Benny always is pretty known for, especially around the radio station, his costumes, which I guess we normally see around Halloween, but it sounds like they happen on other occasions
0: as well. Exactly, and this is where I'm wearing less, not more this time, so (laughs) I'm a little embarrassed by it already, but we'll just see how it works.
1: You'll have to put that on your Bumble profile. Oh, boy.
0: (laughs) objects in the, what is it objects in the view are larger than they appear okay I'm just gonna leave it at that uh, ah, no 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 not below the belt above the belt
1: <laughs> okay now it's kind of funny okay Whew. what an awesome segue right into kind of a serious topic for you make today. it work <laughs> yeah okay well thanks benny Um, Okay, so um, as Benny mentioned in our intro, we have got a fantastic guest on today, and I want to just give you a little bit of background um, on him and then why this subject is important to me and and how I came to learn about uh, Robert Whitaker's work. So um, Robert is an American journalist and author who has won numerous awards as a journalist covering medicine and science, including the George Polk Award for Medical Writing and a National Association for Science Writers Award for Best Magazine article in 1998. He wrote a series on psychiatric research for the Boston Globe that was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for public service. His first book, Mad in America, was named by Discover Magazine as one of the best science books of 2002. Anatomy of an Epidemic, which we'll be exploring today, uh, won the 2010 Investigative Reporters and Editors Book Award for Best Investigative Journalism. He is the publisher of the web magazine madinamerica.com. And you can find out more about him um, and find this website is is. Phenomenal. Um, Find out all the latest research, among so many other things, when it comes to um, psychiatric drugs and and a lot of other topics. But we're going to mainly be focusing on um, the psychiatric uh, pharmacology today. Um, So that website, again, is Mad in America, and you can find his uh, books on Amazon.com. Um, and I also, you know, uh, Bob, before we dive in today, I just wanted to do a little public service announcement um, and, and see if you have anything to add to this. But we're going to be talking about some things that may, um, if you are on a, a psychiatric medication, it may pose some questions for you. Or if you have been hesitant about, uh, if you, I have a lot of clients, I'll just say this, who both are under psychiatric care as well as doing coaching with me. And sometimes when they learn this information, the tendency is, run home and stop taking the meds. And I just wanna say, if you learn some information today that has you questioning or expanding your horizons a bit, please, please do not stop taking your medication. There is so much evidence out there for tapering your medications if you do decide to ultimately come off of them. And Dr. Kelly Brogan and Dr. Christiane Northrup, they talk a lot about this. Like Dr. Kelly Brogan with her patients uses a jeweler scale to actually <laughs> take down the dose. That's how little she's taking off at any given time for, you know, weeks or months at a time. So, And even, uh, I think, some of the research today, like overall, it can take years to come off of these. So please, if you learn something today that has you thinking, don't just immediately run out and stop taking your meds. Okay. (laughs) Bob, welcome to the show. Uh, It's nice
2: to be here, and I'm glad you uh, led with that public service announcement. I think that's a really important message. And so if we're discussing sort of the merits of psychiatric drugs in this public venue, it can be seen as you know trying to provide informed consent, helping people make informed decisions. But as you said, uh, no one should listen to this and then immediately throw away their drugs. That's not good at all.
1: No, and I love that you just brought up informed consent because I think one of the foundational ethical principles on which medicine be- is based is informed consent and basically knowing the benefits and the risks before making a decision as to what you're going to put in your body and I think I also hear I just want to um, I forget where this I, I heard this first from Kelly Brogan I don't know where the original stat came from it might have been you Bob But <coughs> Basically a lot of people when they hear this go. Well, wait a minute. Why hasn't my doctor told me this uh, this is We're we're I, I just feel like no one has told me these things and on average my understanding is it can take 17 years before Evidence of inefficacy or adverse effects trickle down into your doctor's office. So science <laughs> is making great discoveries, and they don't actually make it into the doctor's office for a variety of reasons, um, and not malintent on the doctor's necessarily, but but just based on how this information finally trickles down. Um, so maybe you're hearing things today that your doctor is not even aware of. Um, is did that stat come from you, Bob, or where did I, I hear know, that?
2: I know this stat, but it does doesn't come from me um that's a stat that uh, just looking at drugs of all different types and Mm
1: -hmm. what happens
2: is they get promoted and people start using them and then as information comes up about maybe their lack of effectiveness over time or more adverse effects there's no machinery for really promoting that through the larger um you know society or even to doctors because all the machinery is really devoted to sort of selling products. I'm talking about pharmaceutical companies or even, you know, you have a professional guild like the American Psychiatric Association. Uh, drugs are one of its products or its main product. So yeah, there's a real problem in that a story gets put out there when a drug comes to market or a class of drugs. And that is, that story really is meant to promote the use of that product. And when, when, Negative information starts piling up. um, There isn't a real mechanism for making that known in society or making it known to doctors. And so, as you said, often the prescribers, you know, they're in the dark, too. They can't give informed consent because they don't know have the information.
1: Exactly, yeah, and one of the reasons this subject is important to me, um, so I'll just, a little background, most of my listeners know I was raised um, in Texas, and um, I, I was told growing up that plaintiff's attorneys were ambulance chasers, and that you did not want to be on that side of the fence, and I ended up marrying my, my ex-husband, who has since passed away, but I was a dear friend until the time of his passing, but he was a plaintiff's attorney who did um, toxic tort uh, law and basically he was like Aaron Brockovich so he would sue chemical companies who were polluting water sources, for example, or he also sued pharmaceutical companies. Uh, pharmaceutical companies when they had been fraudulent in, in either falsifying or skewing studies and not being honest about the adverse effects. And then you've got people who are um, you know committing suicide when they go on an antidepressant. You've got people who um, are developing cancer and were not told of the risks when they went on a particular birth control or something. So it, it I really, there was a lot of cognitive dissonance in the very beginning of our relationship, but as an attorney, And I read the case law and I started going, oh, my gosh. And you see these liability documents and these companies. um, And I know there are a lot of really good companies doing wonderful things out there. There are good people and bad people, I think, in all camps, ethical and unethical, in all sides of the law and of companies and everything. But. Um, just when you start seeing some of the liability documents that show like what they have hidden, it really became alarming and I had to change my tune. And ultimately, I was so proud of him for being a champion for people where, you know, certain government governmental agencies and certain companies were not being honest with the public and who else is going to hold them accountable. If there are no regulations, who else is going to make products safe for people or hold Companies accountable for what they're doing, and so this is this is an area that is um, I'm pretty passionate about. And so I, I discovered Robert's work through Dr. Kelly Brogan. Um, she based she, I remember her saying in one of in her book A Mind of Your Own um, that when she she used to be a dyed-in-the-wool Western allopathic psychiatric practitioner who regularly uh, prescribed psychiatric meds to her patients primarily women a lot of them pregnant and breastfeeding and then she got pregnant with her first child and she started actually looking at the research and was uh, pretty horrified by what she found and she she describes Robert Whitaker as one of her main uh, inspirational sources that opened her eyes and got her looking harder and so I feel really honored to be able to talk to you Bob today about um, you know what you have found in in your uh, study of decades upon decades of the scientific literature that the public is not even aware of. Um, so let's just, um, with that intro for me and my my soapbox feel about why I'm passionate about this, why a lot of people might think, okay, so Bob must be biased. Like he must have something out, you know, against uh, drugs or pharmaceutical companies. But it's actually quite the opposite. You started as a believer in conventional wisdom. So can you tell us a little bit about what got you interested in this in the first place?
2: Yeah, I think this is actually very important because often if you do criticize a sort of prevailing wisdom or a prevailing narrative that is seen as scientific base, people say, ah, you must be biased. Well, my background was as a, I was a newspaper reporter covering medicine and science for a long time. I was also director of publications at Harvard Medical School for a time. And in those positions, what what you're really sort of geared to think about our, our, our progress, advances in medicine. And um, my understanding of psychiatry in the 1990s was that it was indeed the case for psychiatry as well. My understanding was that um, researchers had discovered that mental disorders like schizophrenia and depression and bipolar were due to chemical imbalances in the brain. And that we now had drugs that fix those chemical imbalances, like insulin for diabetes. and And I wrote such stories. And that's a story of an unbelievable advance, because given how complex the human mind is, the human brain is, the idea that researchers could identify the very molecule that causes madness or causes depression and fix it, I, I it's hard to imagine any greater medical advance than that, given the complexity of the human brain. And then what happened was, in the 1990s, I did come upon some research, you know, studies that seemed abusive of psychiatric patients. So I began looking more and more into psychiatric research. And then what I did is, during the 1990s, we got these new antipsychotics that came to market. They were called atypical antipsychotics. And they were said to be so much safer and better than the previous generation of antipsychotics, Haldol, and Thorazine, and those drugs. So what I did is I used a Freedom of Information request to uh, look at the FDA reviews of those drug trials, trials of those drugs, which would be presented as breakthrough drugs. And what I found was that, in fact, a number of people had died in those trials, and second, the um, FDA had said, your trials are biased by design against the old drugs. This is what they said to Janssen and Eli Lilly. And they said, there's really no evidence that these new drugs are um, any better than the old ones. So what happened was I began to question that narrative of uh, chemical imbalances that were fixed by drugs and the new drugs being much better. And given my training as a science reporter, I just really wanted to look at what the science said. And the moment that really, so I I did this series in 1998 um, that looked at these abuses of patients in psychiatric settings, but at this time, I still had a conventional understanding that the drugs fix chemical imbalances in the brain, like with schizophrenia, and that which was due to a dopamine, you know, which was due to too much dopamine. So I still, that was still the framework for talking about some of these abuses. But then what happened was this: I, uh, at, after that study, um, after that, my series ran. I began calling some psychiatrists and saying, leading psychiatrists, and saying, "Hey, listen, I'm just interested. Can you tell me where you actually found?" that depression is due to too little serotonin or where you actually found uh, where schizophrenia is due to too much dopamine. And I swear to God, they told me this, that's a metaphor. And I I said, I understand that like insulin for diabetes is a metaphor, but where did you find that people with depression had too little serotonin? And I swear to God, they said, well, we didn't really find that. (laughs) And that was this moment where I sort of gasped and I said, So the public is being told a false story? And what they explained to me was, well, yes, but it gets people to take their drugs, and we know the drugs are good for them. Well, right away you can see the problem, because you're not supposed to tell people that they have a known pathology, which is fixed by a drug, when you actually didn't find that to be the case. And that became my entry into sort of putting this whole narrative – of advances in psychiatry under uh you know a scientific microscope and seeing if the science supported that narrative and there was one other finding or two other findings that really launched me on this questioning of the conventional narrative one again this, the conventional narrative in psychiatry is that we that antipsychotics were introduced in asylum medicine in 1955 and this is a and this is the start of a, psychopharma, a psychopharmacological revolution, a great advance in care. That's the conventional narrative. So, what I found while I was doing that series for the Boston Globe was that, <clears throat> first of all, Harvard researchers had looked at um, outcomes for schizophrenia patients over the past 100 years, and they had concluded that today they were no better than they had been 100 years ago. And in fact, they were now declining. So that belied the story of progress I believed in. And then I also came upon studies done by the World Health Organization, two studies that compared outcomes for schizophrenia patients in, in three developing countries or poorer countries India, Colombia, and Nigeria with outcomes in the US and five other, quote, developed countries. And each time, one study was two years in length, the other was five years in length, they concluded that they found that outcomes in the poor countries, and particularly India, And Nigeria were much better than in the U.S. and these other rich countries. And I said, well, why would that be? Because, you know, we're so proud of our medical advances, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And then in the second World Health Organization study, the researchers had looked at medication use. And they had hypothesized maybe the reason for the better outcomes for schizophrenia patients in the poor countries is that they're more medication compliant, which is a valid hypothesis that the medications are supposed to be so essential. And what they found, however, was that in the poor countries, they used the drugs acutely, in other words, for short periods of time, but not chronically. They did not maintain their schizophrenia patients on antipsychotics long-term. Whereas, of course, that's that's the um, recommended form of care in the U.S. and other developed countries. So all of a sudden, I was being presented with data that didn't fit with what I had known to be true, which was this story of progress. And so basically what I began doing, and this is what informed Mad in America, was just looking at, well, what does the research really say about these things? And when you do that, you find a whole other story in there that is you know, quite upsetting, actually. And it begins with the fact that the whole chemical imbalance story was, was a hypothesis that was really discredited in the 1980s
1: yeah and i just want to say you know for those out there listening the first book that he just mentioned mad in america um, really looks at the history of schizophrenia in america and then examines how the drug companies in the 80s and 90s basically skewed their studies to prove that new antipsychotics were more effective than the old and then of course kept patients in the dark about what the dangerous side effects were so then fast forward to the book that we're um, diving into today anatomy of an epidemic And, you know, we're talking about a lot of, there are a lot of statistics, and there's a lot of research out there, and so sometimes your eyes may glaze over if you're thinking, oh gosh, I don't know, you know, I'm not a science person. Let me just tell you, this book reads like a mystery thriller, and this is not just a bunch of statistics. This is basically... uh, Robert poses a question, and we are we are basically working together as you read the book to solve the mystery, and he leaves a lot of it up to you to draw your own conclusions, just presenting you with the actual scientific research that's out there that you or I, or maybe even your doctor, has never seen before. So don't be scared off by this being um, a, a pretty <laughs> meaty topic. It is actually quite entertaining if you do read the book from beginning to end, because it's also not just about the research. Research, but it's about a story of psychiatry and its fall from grace and how they tried to recover their image. And again, there are wonderful psychiatrists out there. But this is there is a there is a, um, a theme and there is a storyline that Robert has picked up on from looking all the way back you know, into the eight or the 1900s and before, all the way up to present time. And it really is an interesting story. So I'll just say that before we get into it. Um, And let me, Benny, do you think we should take our break right now before we get into the meat of the book? Uh, No, let's hold on.
2: You go ahead and continue if you want just a little bit. Let's tease a little bit. By the way, that was a wonderful description of the book. <laughs> oh, yeah, right? That was
1: really great. <laughs> sure, sure? No, I just, I want people to read this, so I don't want them to be scared off and think it's just a bunch of science that will be over their head. Because I am, believe me, that's why I went to law school. Science was not my forte, but this book is very approachable. That's so, <laughs> okay, so, Bob, um, what so? What is anatomy of an epidemic about? Like, what was the what was the conundrum and the question that you were trying to answer?
2: Yeah. So, if um, again, the story that we've been told is that um, we we're making advances in understanding the biology of these disorders, and we've got these new and better drugs, and more and more people are getting treated, diagnosed, and treated for these quote illnesses of the brain. Now, that's a narrative that you would expect would lead to a reduction in the burden of those illnesses in society. So normally, let's say you get an effective treatment for whatever it might be, a bacterial infection or some disease, you'll see that the burden of that uh, that disease goes down because now you have an effective treatment and more people are getting treated. But it seemed to me that, in fact, the opposite was, a, was occurring as we got more people diagnosed and more people treated, and it seemed like the burden of mental illness was increasing in our society. And so the first thing I did to sort of look at this burden was look at the number of people on disability, government disability, who had been declared eligible for disability because of a mental disorder, mental illness. Now in 1987, um, and that's the year that Prozac uh, uh, comes to market and really kicks off this expansion of use of psychiatric drugs. There were 1.25 million adults on government disability due to mental illness. Now here we are, uh, you know, 30 years later, and we're up to around 5 million adults on government disability. So the disability roles have dramatically expanded since uh, Prozac came to market, and that was the first of the so-called sort of second-generation wonder drugs. And our spending, by the way, on psychiatric drugs went from around $800 million in 1987 to more than $40 billion today. So there's this 50 fold increase in the use of drugs. So the conundrum is this we are told that um, we are making great advances in understanding the biology of mental disorders. We are told that we have drugs that are very effective and safe for the treatment of those disorders and help people. Uh, lead more normal, functional lives, and we've been running all these educational campaigns to get more people diagnosed and treated. Yet, as this has happened, rather than the burden of mental illness go down, the burden of mental illness in our society has skyrocketed. So that's the conundrum: is, is why would that be so, and what? I, in essence, tried to do an Anatomy of an Epidemic, and really I think this was the, and I know this was the first book that really tried to do this, and in fact you don't even see people doing it much in, 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 a, in a comprehensive way in the scientific arena, is just look at how do these drugs affect people over the long term. Um, so drugs get approved for market because they beat placebo over, say, a six-week period. I wanted to see how they shape people's lives over the course of one year, two years, five years, 10 years, and not only just on the symptoms of, say, depression or uh, bipolar or some psychotic disorder, but on their capacity to function. And that's a question where, in essence, you're gonna try to tease out, well, what is the natural course of these disorders in, if, if they're not medicated? And then you see how the variable of medication affects that long-term course. So that was the um, goal of this book, was to uh, try to assess their their long-term effects of these medications.
1: Yes, and I think this is a good point, Benny, for us to leave with a teaser. And so what I will, you know, we talked a little bit um, in this first half of the show about the, the um, a theory that the psychiatric medications are fixing a chemical imbalance in the brain has been disproven. Um, and there's there are plenty, <laughs> the quotes in the book are amazing from these folks from all the Ivy League institutions to National Institute of Mental Health to all of the organizations. So that was a, a metaphor or a, a myth, so to speak, but it got people to take the drugs. Um, and the theory was the drugs made people better, even if they weren't fixing a chemical imbalance in the brain. So what I'm gonna leave off here before we hit our break is the evidence that these drugs actually don't fix a chemical imbalance in the brain, they create an imbalance that in some cases is not reversible back to your normal (laughs) brain function when you stop taking these meds. And that's a pretty scary, uh, scary statistic. So um, you are listening to Sunny in Seattle. I am interviewing today uh, Robert Whitaker, a journalist and award-winning author about um, uh, several of his works, but we're talking right now about Anatomy of an Epidemic. And we will take our break and we'll see you in just a few.
0: The preceding audio was via a Skype call.
1: Are you ready to get unstuck from a bad marriage and embrace your best life? If you're anything like me, you may have spent years creating a life that looks pretty good on paper. There's just one problem. Your marriage is unhappy and unfulfilling, but you're too scared to trade your comfortable life for a future full of unknowns. In my new book, Unhitched, I will give you the tools you need to make the right decisions about your marriage, as well as the confidence that your future can be better and brighter than you can even imagine. I share my own very personal story and I will guide you through a clear process that will enable you to answer the question, should I stay or should I go? It's a process that will help you tune out fears and unwanted advice and instead tune into your own intuition and inner wisdom, as well as exit a marriage gracefully and feel secure about your future. Get ready to trade confusion and stagnation for your best life. Unhitched, unlock your courage and clarity and unstick your bad marriage. Available today on Amazon.com. Alternative Talk 1150, it's good for what ails you. This statement has not been evaluated by the FDA. And welcome back to Sunny in Seattle. Um, I'm your host Sunny Joy. I am joined today by American journalist and author Robert Whittaker, talking about uh, his book and his work um, investigating uh, psychiatric medications and, um, and psychiatric care in America. Um, the book is Anatomy of an Epidemic if you wanna check that out um, after the show today. So we left on a bit of a cliffhanger, um, and so I know a lot of, um, I, was, I have been under the care of a psychiatrist as an adult, I'm not currently on any medications, um, but I do remember being told, uh, you know, in the doctor's office that this drug is fixing a chemical imbalance in your brain, and a lot of my friends who are on antidepressants and anti-anxiety meds, are all told, this is fixing a chemical imbalance. So we've already talked about, and if you want all the detailed scientific literature, and this is peer-reviewed, evidence-based research on the chemical imbalance theory basically being a myth, um, you can find that in the book, but on not just it being a myth, um, so let's say that was a myth, but the drugs actually do make people better, uh, I mean, that's at least... I mean, I don't know, arguably, maybe continuing the use of medication or at least being more informed. But what you found in your review of the scientific literature is that in most cases, these drugs actually create chemical imbalances in the brain, some of which may not be reversible when you go off the meds. Um, So can you speak to that a little bit, Bob?
2: Yeah, this is, I think, maybe that the the most disturbing part of this whole story so let's do the low serotonin theory of depression so the way that theory got um, in the way the hypothesis arose was they came to understand that antidepressants uh, perturbed normal serotonin function in a way that ups serotonergic activity okay So they said, well, if the drugs up serotonergic activity, maybe people with depression have too little serotonin. So that's where the hypothesis arose. But then they had to do studies of people with um, depression and see, was there anything uh, abnormal about their serotonergic system? And as early as 1984, the NIMH said, we're just not finding it. And in 1998, for example, after many, many decades of such research, the American Psychiatric Association said there is no real serotonergic uh, deficiency in depression. Okay? That's the first half of that story. Mm -hmm. The second half is this. So you go on a drug um, that ups serotonergic activity, your brain being an incredibly neuroplastic organ, has all these feedback loops, and all of a sudden the feedback loops start screaming, "Uh uh-oh, because of the presence of the drug, we have too much serotonergic activity going on. And so what it does then in compensatory response is it dials down its own serotonergic machinery. So neurons that put out serotonin begin putting out less serotonin, And the receiving neurons, the neurons where that um, molecule of serotonin binds to, they actually um, decrease the density of their receptors for serotonin. So, what researchers discovered was this you didn't have a low serotonergic uh, problem before you went on an antidepressant, but afterwards you do, because the drugs, by causing and putting the accelerator on uh, serotonergic activity, cause your brain to put the brake on its own serotonergic activity and dr- drives it into a subsensitive state. And the way to imagine this is, um, just think of the drug in this case as an accelerator, and in response, your brain puts down the brake, and researchers say the brain is trying to maintain a homeostatic equilibrium, its normal functioning. Okay? Now you Now you try to go off the drug, okay? So you re- remove that accelerator, but now your brain is still in this subsensitive state. It still's got the breakdown. Now, that, in other words, you do now have a chemical imbalance. That's going to cause all sorts of withdrawal effects. And now the question is if you've been on these drugs for a longer period of time and come off, will the brain reset itself back to a normal level of serotonergic activity? In other words, will its neurons? increase the density of our serotonergic receptors back to a normal level? Will the the neurons that put out that neurotransmitter, will they start putting out the normal amount? And what is so concerning is there's some evidence that um, it's not always the case that the brain will reset.
1: Yeah, and... uh this is the part, and we're talking, they actually have been able to look at the number of receptors in the brain, the size of the receptors in the brain. So this isn't just theory. They've actually looked at the ch- Excuse me, the changes in the brain that occur. And then this is also, I think, a scary part of the cycle of this, is that so you come off the meds, especially if you don't taper. And again, public service announcement, if you're hearing this and you're getting a little bit nervous or you think, oh, God, I don't want to take them anymore, please, please Work with a professional to taper this over months and maybe even years. Because what can happen is when you go off of them, your brain goes haywire. And then you go back to your doctor and you say, oh, my God, my symptoms are worse. And that can be used as evidence. I'm using air quotes, evidence that your, your disorder is actually needing the medication or what it actually is are withdrawals serious, serious withdrawal symptoms. So oftentimes you go back on the meds thinking that, oh, gosh, my, diso- my disorder is just really bad, when in reality these are just very serious withdrawal symptoms like with any very um, potent drug. Did I get that right, Bob?
2: Yeah, absolutely. There's been an incredible confusion. I mean, what, what, just as you said, the medical establishment, the psychiatric establishment for the longest time would assign any sort of symptoms that appeared upon stopping drugs as a sign that the illness was returning, even though the symptoms of uh, when you've withdrawn from drugs may be very, very different from when, you know, you first first developed the disorder. In other words, they're really not the symptoms of the disorder. They're symptoms of something different. And, and for the longest time, you know, the, the research, the psychiatric community just didn't want to focus on this withdrawal problem and this... And this other underlying problem, this, so the understanding of how drugs, psychiatric drugs, as a matter of course, induce changes in the brain, the opposite of what the drug does. So for example, antipsychotics act as a break on dopamine activity. They found, and this goes back to the late 70s, early 1980s, that in response, the brain ups its own dopamine activity. And this actually became the model for understanding psychotropic drug action, is that they perturb some normal functioning of a neurotransmitter, either increasing it or decreasing it, and that triggers a compensatory response of an opposite sort. And yet this information, and and even to be more or equally, um, you know, a sense of betrayal here is, so this goes back to the 80s, that research said, and this is why drugs may make people worse over the long, uh, longer periods of time, may make their disorder, whether it be depression or even schizophrenia, more, run a more chronic course. That goes back to the 80s, this worry about chronicity. And also this would explain why you have withdrawal symptoms and also maybe why you have so many adverse effects with these drugs because you're not normalizing function, you're abnormalizing function. So that was actually present, that understanding was actually present in the research literature uh, going back to the early 1980s, and it was so threatening to the story that psychiatry as an institution was telling itself and telling to the public, and the story, of course, that the drug companies wanted to tell, that it just wasn't um, promoted you know, to the larger medical community or to the public, and that's the betrayal. Because that science was there for a long time.
1: Yeah, and you know, another, this is a very small segment of the population, and this relates to antidepressant use, but I want to just say it because I had a friend who was affected by this, and it is a, uh, you may not have heard this term before, I hope I say it right, akathisia. And it actually, in certain segments of the population, and it's a small percentage, but the thing is, we don't know who it's going to affect. But this is when you start taking an antidepressant, uh, it induces feelings uh, or suicidality and homicidal behavior. Um, and so there are some really scary stories. And these were these were effects that um, were hidden when the research was presented to the FDA. Now there has been, thanks to numerous uh, lawsuits, there is now a black box warning, I believe, on most antidepressants that it can cause this, but, until we know who that's going to affect, it seems very scary to have this very commonly administered medication out there circulating so widely.
2: Yeah, I mean, this, and this goes, I mean, by the way, it can happen with antipsychotics too. Oh,
1: I didn't especially realize the, that.
2: Especially the older ones. Yeah, akathisia was uh, first described in patients treated with antipsychotics in the 1960s. And then there was research in the 70s and 80s that tied it to increased self-harm and increased violence and even homicide. And we know, and as you said, it can. It, there's also antidepressants can also stir akathisia. Yeah, this is part of the informed consent question. I mean, even if let's say it's one percent or something or two percent of people, it's actually higher than that. But let's say it's a small percentage that suffer akathisia. Well, when it can have such devastating consequences, you would think that doctors, when they, you know, were talking to patients, and you know, speaking about the risks and benefits, they would mention this. But mm-hmm. it doesn't get mentioned. Now, that's the problem around informed consent. And yeah. the other things is, if it's mentioned, you're going to be on the alert for it, right? You're going to say, "Ah, oh, I'm starting to feel suicidal. And I never used to," or "I'm starting to feel aggressive." And you could say to yourself, "Uh-oh." Since that didn't happen before, this is undoubtedly, uh, you know, an effect of the drug. And akathisia, often see people are very, have a lot of inner agitation. They can't sit still. So they would recognize or loved ones could recognize that this was an adverse effect. But if you're not warned about it, you, you're not sort of on the alert for this adverse effect.
1: Yes. Yes. And again, I just want to emphasize, you know, what we're talking about today. We're not trying to sway you one way or the other. We just want you to have the information so that you can make the decision that is right for you and your family. Um, And speaking of which, Bob, this brings up. I want to make sure we cover this topic. Um, I was just. It's an understatement to say that I was horrified when I read the research um, when, as it regards to children and some children um, being put on antipsychotics now in ages two or three. But um, I think it's important to note, again, emphasizing that there is a lot of research to suggest that use of these psychiatric medications, and we'll just talk when it relates to children about, um, well, I guess they're on all kinds of things now, antidepressants, ADHD medications, some of them antipsychotics, but that this can permanently change a child's brain. And the long-term studies, and I'd love for you to speak to the long-term effects about how this sets them up potentially for higher, much higher risk of depression as adults, much lower functioning, less social connection, less ability to hold a job. So yes, it may help them uh, stay quiet in a classroom for several years, but what does it do to them long term? So do you mind speaking about children? Cause this is a very, it's a very, it's a top button topic.
2: Yeah, the the, the medicating of children um, cannot be understood as a scientific enterprise, because there is not any sort of compelling research that tells of you benefiting these kids, um, it can only really be understood as a marketing enterprise, and you know, basically expanding the the, the use of drugs into this age group. So each of these different classes of drugs um, has different problems. With stimulants, there is the there are a number of problems with stimulants, but maybe the most uh, profound one is that with a stimulant, you're basically setting people the children to go through a cycle. Stimulants, you know, causing a uh, uh, sort of an acceleration of activity, right? Mm-hmm. It's an upper, and then of course, as anybody who's ever taken uppers knows, you then crash, right, when the mm-hmm. drug wears off. So you start going through this cycle of. Where you get you have this upper effect, and then you crash into a, a, a downward effect. And what are you doing? You're setting up the very cycle that gets uh, kids diagnosed with bipolar disorder. So one of the things you'll happen, you'll see with one of the risks with stimulants is, in fact, uh, that they'll move on to this more severe diagnosis. And once they get the diagnosis of bipolar, they're put on any myriad of drugs, and they're seen as becoming chronically ill. Um, but the other thing is with, say, stimulants, which are probably in some ways the milder of the three class of drugs, um, there's been several long-term outcome studies of kids medicated for ADHD, and none of them are uh, uh, positive for the drug-treated kids. The biggest one done in the United States was called the MTA study. It was uh, begun in the 1990s. And they did show after 14 months that the medicated kids had a, a little greater reduction of um, ADHD symptoms and might be reading better after 14 months. And that was the finding that was presented to parents and is still presented to parents today saying, this is why you know your, your kids should be on these drugs. But they don't tell us what happened at the three-year results or the six-year results. At the end of three years, the researchers said that being on stimulants was a marker not of benefit but of deterioration so think about that but of deterioration Mm. and at the end of six years the kids who were medicated were more likely to be delinquents more likely to have um, you know ADHD symptoms uh, more likely to be functionally impaired in other words they were doing worse and yet that information is never uh, is never you know presented to the public Now, there's been a study in Canada that basically came up with the same results. There was one in Australia that came up with the same results. And as one uh, long-term researcher, psychologist named Alan Sroof, wrote, I think it was in 2013 or 2014, there has never been a study of ADHD kids that has found any benefit in any domain of functioning over the long term. No benefit in any domain of functioning. Which means at this point you're just gonna, you know, tally up all the adverse effects, which is risk of bipolar, there's some stunted growth, some cardio, cardiovascular possible problems, and you know, greater risk of being diagnosed with depression later on, and so on and so forth. So, given that research, why would we be medicating five percent or eight percent of our kids with stimulants? With antidepressants. Those trials, So at least with stimulants, you, they supposedly caused some changes in behavior over the short term that help kids in, in, in the classroom. With antidepressants, um, those drugs weren't even seen as effective over the short term in, in curbing um, depressive symptoms. What, what happened is basically pharmaceutical companies spun their results to the public, but they did not show efficacy. And so what you're left with is, again, you know, tallying up all the adverse effects. And what are those are? Well, antidepressants can stir manic reactions. You have that problem. Uh, They can stir, like, gastrointestinal problems. They can mute emotions. They can cause sexual dysfunction. They increase the risk of suicide in kids. So you have all these negative effects. And, again, as you you said, Sonny, at the beginning of this, you're going to change these kids' brains they stay on these drugs, they're not going to be the same person they otherwise would have been. Their brain just will be different. And finally, antipsychotics is just, uh, I mean, giving antipsychotics to kids for any length of time, is I I, I think it's basically abuse. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're going to cause metabolic problems. You're going to mute their ability to respond to the world. They won't move around as well. Uh, Antipsychotics have been shown to shrink the brain. Uh, you can cause tardive dyskinesia, which is a, a type of motor dysfunction. And in the only government study of the long-term effects of antipsychotics for, quote, psychotic children, they found that after, I think it was about six weeks, the drugs, the kids stopped getting better. And then most of them began, uh, if anything, getting worse. And the researchers, the NIMH researchers concluded that at the end of 14 months, quote, few kids benefited on these medications. The majority were harmed. Mm. So why are we giving antipsychotics to these kids? And as far as giving antipsychotics to two-year-olds and three-year-olds, I mean, that's just plain criminal
1: yeah I, it just blew me away um, reading about this and you know we've only got we've got like less than five minutes left of the show Bob and I still have so many questions but I don't want to leave people on such a low note um, you also have a chapter on solutions and some really innovative approaches to psychiatric care and it's not eliminating all of the the, uh, the psychiatric meds it's just using them judiciously only when they are needed in those very specific cases and so there is some hope um can you just spend maybe 2 or 3 minutes talking about what what you're excited about and what's happening sure. out there I mean,
2: it, this is the point of all this if you have an honest uh, impression of what this mainstream and uh, this you know the drugs do and if you see that they have all these limitations or problematic things you can rethink what is possible and then you can use the drugs sort of as tools especially in adults sort of as you know, adjunctive tools over the short term, but what you see is in, in 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 other in countries or organizations that have rethought this and are sort of developing environmental uh, type approaches to helping people, including psychotic patients. You see that they can get much better outcomes. You they can also turn the problem away from becoming chronic into an episodic problem, including psychosis. And really, what they all of these other these alternatives have in common is they're seeing human beings as having an inner resilience that that if it's properly nurtured they can draw on and what we need is therapies that enable people to call on that resilience and also create better environments for people and you start thinking well if people are depressed or you know maybe even psychotic uh, you start thinking well what do we all need to stay well or to be well and you think, well, we need um, purpose in life. If you're kids, you need to feel safe. Um, it's, 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 it's good to have shelter, good food, sleep well at night, uh, have friends, have someone to love, someone uh, have someone to love and have someone love you. So you st- when you think of it this way, how do we nurture resilience and how do we uh, use the environment to help people get well? You start thinking, well, what do we all need to get well, and how do you start supplying that? And in in Finland, for example, northern Finland, they've adopted this approach uh, to to even their first episode psychotic patients about building a community back around the person who's psychotic. And five years later, 80% of their first episode psychotic patients are working or back in school and asymptomatic. Those outcomes are so much better than any other outcomes you see in the Western world. And in the Northern Finland, they use drugs in this way, antipsychotics in this way. They try not to put people on antipsychotics right away because they say, without the antipsychotics, we're better able to communicate with the person and the person is able to sort of bring emotional resources to um, the talk therapy. Mm -hmm. And, And so anyway... At the end of five years, only 20% of their patients are taking antipsychotics on a regular basis, so it's a model in which you rethink things, you get better outcomes, and you use drugs much more sparingly.
1: Yes, yes. And I love that. That is a note to end on of hope. Um, And there are many more hopeful stories and um, models that are being used. Again, some of them are using uh, the psychiatric meds, but using them in a much more judicious manner. Um, So, yeah, again, one more PSA. If you've heard something that makes you not want to take your meds anymore today or at least has you questioning... Please, please work with a professional to taper over months to years because that is the what the research shows is the only way to do it without potentially having some debilitating um, and pretty, pretty severe side effects. So, Bob Whitaker, thank you so much for being on Sunny, Sunny in Seattle today.
2: Sunny, thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having
1: me. Absolutely. The book, uh, all the research we were talking about, you can find in Anatomy of an Epidemic or go to madinamerica.com for all the latest research. That's madinamerica.com. Thank you for listening to Sunny in Seattle. This is your host, Sunny Joy, signing off.